Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the Audubon Zoo's two male lion cubs got a clean bill of health at their first vet examination, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, whose own Michael Hoy celebrated the victory of Zulu Alpha and the McDermott Stakes on Saturday at Gulfstream Park in South Florida. The seven-year-old street cry gelding out of APND Mayor Zori also won the grade two race in 2019. Thank you for joining us for season three, episode one of Clear and Convincing. Tonight, we're talking about State of Georgia versus Leo Frank. On April 26, 1913, the body of Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old worker in an Atlanta pencil factory, was found in the factory's basement. On May 24, 1913, Frank, the factory superintendent, was indicted for her murder. Frank's conviction rested primarily on the testimony of Jim Conley, an admitted accomplice in Mary's murder. After unsuccessful attempts to overturn his conviction and death sentence in state and federal court, Frank sought clemency from Georgia's governor, John M. Slayton, in 1915. After considering Frank's request, And relying on new evidence not available at trial, Slayton granted Frank's request and commuted his sentence to life in prison in June of 1915. On August 16th of that year, vigilantes stormed the prison in Milledgeville, took custody of Frank, and hanged him from a tree in Marietta, Georgia. We'll talk about the murder of Mary Fagan, the investigation, indictment, and trial of Leo Frank. We'll also talk about the limited appeals available during the early part of the 20th century, the commutation of Frank's sentence, his lynching, and the efforts that have been made to exonerate him in the 21st century. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. We have a few updates, and uh, uh, then we're ready to get on with the show. I see that. I see we got quite a bit to cover tonight, so I'll try to stay out of your way, and let's do it. All right. Uh, first on the updates, in the Mumia Abu-Jamal case, 
Maureen Faulkner's King's Bench petition to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has been granted. A special master was appointed to investigate, investigate the issues raised in the petition and all proceedings in Jamal's underlying criminal conviction or criminal case have been stayed. Um, this is a pretty landmark uh, situation. Right. It's very unheard of. And this is a, a crime victim actually having a chance to be heard in a court. So well, I, mean, uh, I am definitely keeping an eye on this. That's definitely something that, you know, kind of gives one hope because, you know, there needs to be, you need to hear from the victim more than you hear from the guy who's being accused. And unfortunately, that's right. And Mrs. Faulkner has uh, raised very serious allegations of conflict of interest in the office of the Philadelphia County District Attorney's Office. Relating to Mamiya mm-hmm. Abu Jamal. So uh, the special master will investigate and then recommend uh, whether or not the petition is well founded or not to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which will then grant or deny relief. Uh, she's also supported, however, by the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Really? At least insofar as having the the issues raised in the petition investigated and decided. Hmm. I mean, that's definitely something mm-hmm. good to have behind you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, then the second, um, the second case is the request for post-conviction DNA testing for Sedley Alley's case. Uh, The record has been lodged at the Court of Appeal in Tennessee of the denial of post-conviction DNA testing, and uh, we're waiting on a briefing schedule from the Court of Appeal. And then Mm -hmm. Stacey Johnson in Arkansas, uh, his request for rehearing of his DNA appeal was denied on February 20th. By the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, Of course Justices Hart and Wynn Filed dissents The mandate of his DNA testing appeal Issued on the same date on February 20th And um, In the federal challenge To uh, Lethal injection methods of Arkansas Supplemental authorities Were filed by All defendants on January 24th, 2020. Mm-hmm. And that case is still pending. Okay. And I also wanted to say um, our hearts go out to the people in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm. I believe early this morning, Yeah. very serious outbreak of tornadoes hit, um, damaged a large... Swath of property I believe uh, Last I heard 19 people Lost their lives And our hearts And prayers are with The people in Nashville Really Lisa You never hear Of that many people Anymore losing their life With uh, With the tornadoes 
with you know advanced warning systems like there are and things like that, you never really hear the death toll be that high. But I mean, my goodness. Well, I, I think that this hit while people were sound asleep. Right. I think they said it hit downtown about one o'clock in the morning. Mhm. Yeah. And so you know people weren't. Uh, you know I don't know maybe they were so. So so down, so deeply asleep, they may not have heard the warning sirens. They may not have been able to get – and this was like I understood an outbreak. It wasn't just a single tornado. It was multiple tornadoes popping up close together, mm-hmm. and they may not have had time to warn everybody, and those people may not have had time to get to a safe part of – Whatever you know, place they were in. Very true. But yeah, it, it's horrible. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I remember the straight line win episode we had in Memphis, and it went through in Arkansas. Luckily, it didn't do any damage, but it literally sounded like the train that was three blocks from my house was going mm-hmm. through my backyard. My goodness. And that's yeah, one of the reasons I came back to the Gulf Coast because we don't deal with tornadoes. We deal with hurricanes. I mean, and hurricanes are slow-ass drunk motherfuckers. <laughs> I mean, y'all get so, y'all's tornadoes, but they just come in the form of hurricanes or in a hurricane. Well, we don't. Now, we've gotten a few. Um, as I understood it as a kid, we didn't get a lot because most of the, at least the city of New Orleans, was so well developed that there was nowhere for a tornado to touch down and then pick up strength. So we would get, know you know, like straight line winds that. and high winds. I don't know. But so we weren't out on like the plains. Hmm? It may very well be. I'd have to. I'd have to. You know. <clears throat> Because, I mean, and the only reason why I kind of wonder on that is because, I mean, not saying that we have as many big buildings, but, I mean, tornadoes go through downtown all the time here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the... We also may be... ...for a tornado, but... Yeah, we... Maybe we're on the Gulf. I think that's more of it. And that, you know, the winds don't, like I said, we've had straight line winds. And then we've had gale force with hurricanes. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I, we don't get, the, we don't get the, the, the conditions where the, I think it's when the wind's changing direction. That creates right. the... the Spin. I I used to watch, you know, the first couple of years I lived in Arkansas, whenever they would interrupt TV for the tornado watches, I would watch it and listen to them. But um, I just, it's, but it is terrible for, for Nashville. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, all right. Well, um, the first thing I want to tell you, Michael, and you're probably going to fall out of your chair, so hang on. Uh, 
Um, this is a case that I believe was a miscarriage of justice. Oh, wow. In many ways. I'm going to just tell you that right off the bat. I know you're shocked. I am. <laughs> Hold up. Lisa's, Lisa's on, the, uh, on the side of uh, – Lisa's on the dark side now. <clears throat> Well, no, it's not the dark side. It's just that I've looked at all the facts and the legal issues that were raised. And, you know, one of the biggest things is that the post-conviction avenues that are available today or that even were available in the 1930s were just not available to Leo Frank in 1913 through 1915. Right. And so I don't believe that his uh, his challenges of his conviction and sentence really ever got a full and fair hearing mm-hmm. by the state courts or the federal court. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Okay. So okay. – um, and uh, first off, we want to start off with the victim, who was Mary Fagan. She was the youngest child born to Francis and William Fagan. Uh, she was born in Florence, Alabama, on June 1st, 1899, a few months after her father died of measles. Apparently, measles outbreak uh, in, in Alabama. In the spring, and she was born June 1st. Uh, A few months after she was born, her mother elected to move back to Marietta, Georgia, to be near her family. And then um, when Mary was a toddler, they moved to East Point, which is around Atlanta, Georgia. Mary's family were tenant farmers. So they generally farmed for a you know a bigger landowner <clears throat> they didn't own their own land or, or anything like that uh, at about age 10 Mary quit school to go to work and help support her family her mother uh, her siblings uh, all the children worked and then When she was about 11, 10 or 11, her mother married John William Coleman, who became her stepfather. Um, And in, I think, late 1912, she started working at the National Pencil Company in the factory. They made pencils. Like she was literally a pencil pusher? Well, no, no. She her job was to work at a machine that put the metal band mm-hmm. around the the base of the pencil and the eraser. Oh, okay. Damn. Okay. And um, you know, they had people who formed the the wooden barrel, people who put the lead in, people who stamped the pencils, and it was Mary's job to put the metal band. Um, on April 21st was her last day of work 
because there was a shortage of sheet metal. And so all the people in, in Mary's department were told not to come back to work until they were, you know, summoned because they were waiting on a shipment of the metal. Right. Uh, and then Leo Max Frank was born in Cuero, Texas, which I think is Paris, Texas now, on April 17, 1884. He was the oldest child. Um, he had a sister, Marion, and he may have had a second sister, although I didn't find any information about her. She was just referred to in an opinion. Um he, when he was three months old, his family moved back to Brooklyn, New York, where they were from. His father was a salesman, and so he must have had a job in Texas, and then he had a job opportunity back in New York, and they went back to work. Uh, he had his sister Marion was born in 1896, I believe, or 18, I mean 1886 or 1887. Um and in around 1902, he graduated from Pratt Institute, which is kind of a college preparatory school. It wasn't really a high school um, as we know them today. I guess you went a certain point, and then you did college prep. Because in okay. 1902, he would have been um, – He, I don't know how, how old he would have been in 19... Well, he would have been 20 in 1904, so he would have been 18. Um, he went to Cornell University mm-hmm. and graduated with a mechanical engineering degree. He went to work as a draftsman and test, testing engineer for several companies in the Northeast. And then his uncle, Moses Frank, had invested in a company that was going to begin, you know, building a factory and manufacturing pencils uh, co-owned by people who owned a stationary company. And Moses Frank was an investor. Um, Frank traveled to Atlanta. They liked him. They offered him the job. He went to Germany and studied pencil manufacturing at Eberhard Faber for about nine months. He also oversaw the uh, equipment that was being purchased for the factory. Yes, he studied all aspects of pencil manufacturing. The equipment, the processes, Uh the sales. I mean, he was – the impression that I got from everything I read and from his statement to the jury at his trial, he was a highly intelligent man. Right, right, I agree. I mean, genius level, and he was very, very fastidious. He was going to be the superintendent at this factory, and so in order to do the best job he could, he went and studied the job that he was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. He did an apprenticeship. Um, I guess after he returned to the United States with another manufacturer, and then he went to Atlanta uh, 
and began working at the National Pencil Company in a management position. And Mm -hmm. within a year, he had been promoted to superintendent of the factory. Okay. Which, uh, you know, he, he was like superintendent was like the general manager. And in addition to a salary of about $150 a week, which is a lot of money in 1913, considering that the factory workers probably earned about 5 to $10 a week. Um, he also had a share of the profits. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a good job. And, and he, from Alex said, everything I read, you know, he took it very seriously. He wasn't from a rich family. Um, he was from probably a middle class, comfortable family. But by no means were they rich. Right. Um, around 19, he now he started working at the factory in 1908. Around 1910, he met Lucille Selig, who was the daughter of another prom of a prominent Jewish family in Atlanta, and they were married. Around 1911, 1912. Uh, and in 1913, he was elected president of B'nai B'rith, or uh, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, I know, which is a um, a, a, a Jewish organization, kind of a charitable organization, similar to the Knights of Columbus in the Catholic Church. Right. So it's just he was the president of a charity. Correct. He was the president of a charity that, that, you know, they did things for the community as a whole in Atlanta. Um, they built an orphan's home. They, uh, they oh, built so a, like a Christian school. Pardon? So more like Shriners? Well, not so much Shriners. Shriners, yeah, is, is kind of similar as well. Um, I didn't say Shriners because of their their um, uh, association with the Freemasons. Right, true. Which uh, some people don't look at that as a religious organization. Um, Knights of Columbus is an orga- organization through the Catholic Church. Oh, okay. Okay, so that was what I, I equated it to. But, you know, Shriners... Shriners do do, you know, very important and very good charity work. Don't get me wrong. Um, so, and then finally, uh, there are a lot of actors in this drama, but uh, I'm going to stick with the three main characters, I think. Uh, Jim Conley was an African-American. He was born in Atlanta. He was one of, I think, 10 children. There's not a lot of documentary records because he was born in around 1884, 1885, and there were no written records kept of a lot of births during that era. Um, He had a checkered work history. 
when he went through his work history during the trial, you know, he was at a place six months. He worked for a year. He had something of a drinking, gambling problem um, and was not particularly well regarded by a lot of people in, in his community. He started working at the National Pencil Company in about 1911. Uh, he was running the elevator uh, at the time. By the time 1913 came around, he was a janitor. Um, there were a lot of complaints to the other managers and assistant superintendents about problems with Jim Conley. Uh, he was drunk on the job a lot. He was urinating on um, the stock, the pencils. Damn that were supposed to be shipped out to customers. Um, He, he was, you know, he was not, and, and his reputation with other African-Americans in his community was not good. Um, There were one of the, one of the weird ones I saw uh, was that for a fee, he used to let, uh, prostitutes use the basement of the pencil factory to conduct their business. Uh, he gambled. He drank. He just overall. He was a bit of an unsavory character. Just a bit. Just a bit. So, um, and because of the drinking and the gambling, and you know he. If he'd have been a white guy, he would have done it. He would have been just as bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think, you know, I think at the heart of it, it was a personality trait that had nothing to do with his race. Um, so, uh, April 26, 1913, was Confederate Memorial Day. Uh, that was celebrated to honor, I think, more the Confederate widows than the soldiers themselves. Uh, but it was a it was a holiday in Atlanta, and so the factory was actually closed that day. Some people did come into work. They may have had you know essential jobs. That had to be done. Some people came in and worked a half a day in the office, uh, but none of the the girls who worked in the factory came in on that Saturday. Everybody was off. Uh, Frank arrived early that morning, about eight thirty. He had accounting work to do, which he did every Saturday. And that basically included looking over the orders shipped out on Friday, making sure the invoices were correct. He uh, paid any employees who weren't there to be paid on Friday, which was the normal payday. He um, also did the financial statements to let the owners of the company know how the company was doing as far as accounts receivable, accounts payables, uh, payroll, profit, 
et cetera. Um, and the, he did the work on Saturday because it was very detailed and required precision and concentration. And Saturdays were the quietest day for him to do the job. Mary lived in Bankhead, and it was referred to by a different name in some of the sources, uh, which I'm not quite sure what part of Atlanta. I guess it's in the East Point area. Um, she ate an early lunch about 11.30 of cabbage and bread. And then she was dressed in a lavender dress that her aunt had made her. She had a hat. She had a parasol. She had a little silver mesh bag. She was going to leave, take a trolley into Atlanta, pick up her pay because she wasn't there on Friday, and then go see the parade. Later that afternoon, I think about about 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, um, she did ride the trolley. Conflicting statements. Uh, her friend George Epps said he was with her, but other witnesses said that he wasn't with her on that particular day, that he was getting that day mixed up with another day. Um, anyway, she got to the factory sometime after 1210. She got her pay, and that's the last time anybody saw her alive. At around 12.30 or 1 o'clock, Leo Frank left the factory to go to lunch. He went home. He had lunch with his father-in-law, wife, and mother-in-law. He then laid down for a few minutes and... Came then went came back to the factory around two o'clock to uh, continue his accounting work. At around four, Newt Lee, who was the night watchman, arrived, and he was sweeping up or you know doing some other chores around the lobby area. And uh, Leo Frank came down and said he was making too much noise, and told him to just go ahead and take a couple hours off and come back at six o'clock. So Newtley left the factory. Um, And then at six o'clock, Newtley returned. Now he'd only been there a few weeks. Uh, I think it was less than, it was less than four weeks. Uh Um, At six o'clock, Frank finishes counting work. And as he was leaving the factory, a former employee named Gant arrived to pick up two pairs of shoes that he had left in his locker. Initially, uh, Newtley and Leo Frank did not want to admit him to the factory, but he impressed upon them the expense of the shoes, and they decided to go ahead and let him come in the factory and pick up his shoes. Uh, Frank left after Gant went in and Newtley was going to just make sure that he left once he picked up his shoes. Um, Frank went home, had dinner with his wife and in-laws, had a bath, went to bed about 11 o'clock. I think they might've gone out and visited with uh, friends or or relatives uh, in the neighborhood. And then, 
came home, went to bed about 11 o'clock that night. On Sunday, April 27th, Newt Lee discovered Mary Fagan's body in the basement of the pencil factory. Uh, She was lying face down on the basement floor. She appeared to have been dragged uh, from an area under the trap door that came down into the basement toward a, uh, I think a trash or coal bin. Uh, he He summoned police. They arrived, and they had a reporter in tow. How this happened, I don't know. Um, they they got someone to come identify Mary. They found two notes that were written that purported to have been written by Mary, identifying the night witch as the person who killed her. Uh, and I'm not going to go through reading the notes because it's just too creepy. Um, yeah. Another thing that they found that was kind of odd. Lisa, the first thing that would jump into my mind is, did anyone think of a robbery as a uh, potential motive? She just got paid. Well, that's something we'll we'll get into. That's something. uh, The condition of the body um, led them to think that it was a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault. Okay. Um, Another thing that they found that was odd is excrement in the elevator shaft. Which was still in perfect form, so to speak. Uh, They also found that a sliding glass, a sliding door, a sliding wooden door leading from the basement into an alley had been broken so that the lock wouldn't lock the door from the inside. The lock on the inside had been broken. So anybody outside in the alley or inside in the pencil factory basement could just use that door to go in and out of the pencil factory. And apparently that was something that the night watchman or the day watchman Leo Frank and the other assistant superintendents and other managers were not aware of. Um, they found also found Mary's hat and parasol at the bottom in the elevator shaft. Mary's purse, oh, her money, and uh, flowers that were on her hat were missing. Police called Frank's house. Uh, Newtley had also tried to call him and couldn't get him, which was made out as being unusual. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, I don't think a phone call being missed. In those days when it, it was ni- in, it was 1913, the telephone was probably down in a hallway at the bottom of the stairs. There might have been a telephone in an upstairs hallway, but it, this was not the days when everybody had a telephone by their bed. Right. Uh, another thing that's, that's interesting is that on the night of the 26th, about seven o'clock, um, which I forgot to mention, Leo Frank called Newt Lee to see how everything was going. 
And Newt Lee thought that was strange because Frank had never called him before. Now, I don't think it's strange because, A, when Frank left, there was a former employee in the factory. And Newt Lee was the person responsible for making sure the fact the former employee didn't stay in the factory. Also, it was a Confederate Memorial Day. It was a holiday. There were a lot of people out and about on the streets, probably a lot of people celebrating. And you might want to call and check in if you have a business in the downtown area where people are going to be maybe drinking and partying and acting stupid. So, um, and, and Newtley hadn't really been there long enough to establish normal and abnormal. You know, Mm -hmm. that might've been the first holiday he'd ever worked. Whereas, you know, normal Saturday, nobody would call, nobody would, you know, nobody would inquire, but, on a holiday, they might, you know, be curious. Anyway, uh, police finally reached Frank about 7 o'clock in the morning. They went to his house and picked him up. Uh, interestingly, he met them at the door in his shirt sleeves, pants. He was somewhat dressed. And he insisted on going and putting on his coat and tie before he left the house. Hmm. Because he was a businessman. Right. And it was not proper for him to be seen out in the street in his shirt sleeves. True. Um, which I also think was, you know, very re- a reasonable thing, but as we'll see later, it was turned into unreasonable. Um, I mean, he did make a... Yeah, that was that was the time. I mean, that was the time. And he may yeah. not have been a southern gentleman, but he was still a gentleman in that sure. era. Um Frank made statements. First of all, he he said he didn't know Mary by name. Uh he didn't know who the girl was. He knew she worked at the factory, but he didn't know who she was. Now, they had already identified Mary through the wife of another, I think, a manager. So why they were trying to have Frank identify her, I don't know. I I never have quite understood that. Um, He also was – he was very nervous. Uh, I frankly don't think that that's – all that unusual when a dead body is found in your business or a business yeah, that you little, are responsible yeah. for, um, it, it's going to make you a little nervous. So in those days, uh, Atlanta had three newspapers. I believe it was the Constitution, the Examiner, and the Journal. The Constitution and the Examiner went into a frenzy. And as a result of stories in those papers, people called in with all kinds of tips on the Mary Fagan murder. There were also rewards being offered, so you know people were hoping to collect a reward. Um, the, the journal 
is the only paper that tried to stay middle of the road and tried to keep their reporting as factual as possible. Um, After a tour of the factory on, I think it was April 29th, Lee was brought to police headquarters and pretty much kept there, although he wasn't formally arrested. Um, He was also asked and helped police interview Newt Lee, the night watchman, who was arrested the morning of the 27th because of the notes. On the 29th was Mary's funeral. Uh, She was taken back to Marietta, Georgia, and her family buried her there. And around the same time, the coroner's inquest began in Atlanta, and it went on for several days. At the coroner's inquest, uh, Leo Frank apparently made one inconsistent statement or one statement that was inconsistent during the inquest to what he told police initially. Initially, he told police that Mary had asked him before leaving whether the medal had arrived, and he told police initially that he told her no. But when he testified at the coroner's inquest, he said he told her he didn't know. I don't find that to be that big an inconsistency. No, not really. I mean, I think they're grasping at straws at this point. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot of public pressure and there's a lot of of anger in the community. There was a lot of pressure or a lot of discord about the factories. Most of the factories were run by northern interests. Oh were owned and run by by northerners. Um and the employees were the poor often young girls. And you know Mary Fagan was 13. She would not turn 14 until June 1st. So she was a very young girl. And a lot of these girls had to quit school and go to work to help support their families. They were paid, you know, like 10 or 12 cents an hour, and they worked 55-hour weeks. Dang. Monday through Saturday. Because I think Saturdays they worked a half a day. Huh. So... um. There, there was a lot of there were a lot of things going on, and there were a lot of issues that this murder exacerbated. Um, on May first, Jim Conley was observed washing a shirt in the factory that appeared to have blood on it. So he was arrested. However, apparently. Somebody looked at his shirt, decided it was just rust, and gave it back to him. Um, He made – Connolly made a lot of inconsistent statements. Uh, He made statements that were proven false, and when he was 
told that the police knew they were false. He admitted that he lied. And then finally, he came around and he implicated Leo Frank in Mary Fagan's murder. He claimed that he was uh, keeping watch for Frank, who wanted to be alone with Mary Fagan. And that at some point, Frank called him and said, I wanted to be with her. She rejected me. I hit her. And she was lying on the floor and Conley discovered she was dead. So then Frank and Conley supposedly move her to the basement. And Frank instructs Conley to burn her body in the furnace, which could not have been used to burn her body because the door was too small to get her body into it. And Conley just couldn't go through with that, and so he left the factory and went and bought some beer and had some sausage and gambled and did whatever he was going to do with his Saturday. I mean, Um, God, he just couldn't do it. (laughs) No, he, he could help move the body to the basement. He could drag the body on the floor. Although he he claims they carried her and they never dragged her, uh, but he couldn't burn her body. Damn it, he is just above all that. Yeah, um, but he also couldn't go to police and say, you know, hey. <laughs> um, so Leo Frank was indicted for Mary Fagan's murder. On May 24th, 1913. There was not a lot of time for pretrial discovery, if that was even a practice then. Um, There was not a lot of time for pretrial motions. And I really, I questioned how much of the state's case his attorneys even knew about. Because his trial started on July 28, 1913. Two months and four days after he was indicted. Damn. Yeah. So, um, the prosecution's case consisted of Conley's testimony, which was inflammatory and prejudicial in so many ways because Connolly, in, in addition to alleging the actions with Mary Fagan that led to her death, but he also alleged that Frank did this routinely with not only other girls that worked in the factory, but also with other people who would come to the factory for the purpose of these immoral liaisons with Leo Frank. Um, And he also claimed that Frank is the one who dictated the two notes found next to Mary's body. Um, And the state did have factory girls testify that Frank um, flirted with them, that he opened the door of the, the dressing room when they were changing, that he looked at them, that he smiled at them. One girl testified that he tried to touch her breasts. 
but none of that really I mean that in and of itself was also prejudicial. And none of that is similar to what happened to Mary. Right. You know, all of that is kind of clumsy, you know, flirting. He smiled at you. How is that, you know, how is that improper? I hope these women lived into their 40s and 50s and finally understood that a strange man telling you that's a pretty dress or your hair looks nice or those are nice shoes is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the talking about touching the breast, I don't know how much I believe of it, but I, I, mean, I, I yeah, that's something I, I don't necessarily, but now, in 1913, although I don't know, I think a Southern girl, a young Southern girl would report that to her family, and her family would come, you know, whip Leo Frank's ass. Right. It wouldn't necessarily result in criminal charges, but, you know, if Leo Frank is doing this routinely with the other girls in the factory, I don't understand that why there weren't some brothers and, and fathers and even husbands routinely whooping Frank's ass. And Frank was a, you know, he was a, a kind of tall, but he was thin, and he was a very delicate-looking man. And all of his pursuits were cerebral, not athletic, although he did play basketball at Cornell. Um, so, you know, I don't understand. The girls wouldn't have necessarily been – they would have probably been upset, and they would have told the family members, a male family member, who would have then kicked Leo Frank's ass. Right. They wouldn't have been ashamed of what happened. You know, um, the stigma would not have been on them. It would have been only on Frank. But, yeah, it was it was uncorroborated. It was their mm-hmm. word. Uh, the defense case, the Luther Rosser, uh, Leo Frank's primary defense attorney, he did everything he could. I mean, he pointed out every lie Connolly initially told police. Connolly lied about being able to read and write. Connolly lied about um, about you know being at the factory at all that day. I mean, he you know he, he kept lying and lying and lying, and then finally decided I got to tell the truth. Um, and then there were multiple witnesses, character witnesses who came in from Cornell, from Atlanta, other people who worked in the factory. Some of the factory workers, certain of the factory girls who testified said, well, you know, she's upset because he would not let the girls stand in the dressing room at the window and flirt with boys down on the street. You know, they weren't fast and they weren't doing anything wrong, but they were not working. They were flirting. And they weren't where they were supposed to be working. Um, but unfortunately, I think the Solicitor General, because trial practice and procedure was not what it is today, uh, the Solicitor General was able to 
imply that Frank was an immoral person, a drug user, a violent person to these character witnesses on cross-examination and basically introduce facts not in evidence, facts he didn't even present in his own case that were based on rumor and innuendo and false statements made during the initial part of the investigation as a result of the media frenzy. And um, another, there were witnesses who saw Frank at various times between the time Mary Frank left his office and the time the police summoned him that accounted for a large portion of his afternoon on Saturday, his evening, and Saturday night, which basically made it impossible for him to have opportunity to commit the murder. And then in Georgia at that time, a defendant could not offer self-serving testimony on his own behalf. Which is really odd, but what procedure allowed was a defendant to make an unsworn statement to jurors. Frank did so, and while some parts of it were very strong and very powerful, the majority of it was basically him going through documents admitted during the trial and laying out April 25th, April 26th, and April 27th for the jurors. And I think that that diminished some of the power of the stronger portions. It was very strong in the beginning, and he was very strong at the end, but in the middle, it was minutiae. Yeah, not exactly the smartest uh, strategy. And uh, well, you know, it, it, it's it's very difficult. I mean, it was very passion. And some parts of it were very impassioned. I just want to read you um, one uh, one bit that he, I think, was the closing of his statement. And, and you know, another part of it was that he addressed uh, each of the witnesses who were lying about him. And, again, you know, he – he I, I think it would have come off better if he had just said, you know, listen to these witnesses of mine. I'm a good man. I'm, you know, I'm not this person. Uh, one of the things that he said – there was an implication because he had questioned Newt Lee and another thing that the Solicitor General could not have ever done in this day and age, he alleged Frank's refusal to meet face-to-face and question Jim Conley was consciousness of guilt. And that would never happen today. But um, he, Frank said, I did not speak to Conley, not because I did not want to, but because I didn't want to have things twisted. I knew that there was not a word that I could utter that they would not deform and distort and use against me. 
Gentlemen, I know nothing whatever of the death of little Mary Fagan. I had no part in causing her death, nor do I know how she came to her death after she took her money and left my office. I never even saw Connolly in the factory or anywhere else on that date, April 26, 1913. Um, gentlemen, some newspaper men have called me the silent man in the tower, and I have kept my silence and my counsel advisedly until the proper time and place. The time is now, the place is here, and I have told you the truth, the whole truth. Wow. And that was very strong. And, you know, he, like I said, he started off strong talking about, you know, where he was from and who he was. And um, had he skipped just going through, you know, go through the highlights. You saw the accounting records because they had somebody testify about the accounting that he did that day. You know, look at those look at those documents. Look at the writing. Look at the lines. You cannot do that if you've just murdered somebody. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, true. You know, you've just murdered somebody. You've just moved their body to a basement, and now you're waiting to get caught yeah, because that's, that's what Jim Conley's. You know, that's one of the things Jim Conley's alleging. In his testimony that uh, Frank said something along the lines of, I've got wealthy friends up north, why should I hang anyway? So um, finally both sides had rested, closing statements were made, Uh, the Solicitor General's closing statement again would never, ever, ever be able to happen now. much of the much of the solicitor general's case now would probably be uh, ruled inadmissible as too prejudicial, more prejudicial than probative. The jury was instructed, and they went out to deliberate. The judge was approached by someone from the governor's office. Who had been approached by the police and the, um, I guess, kind of National Guard. I think it's a Georgia regiment uh, about crowd control and and public reaction to an acquittal or a mistrial. And so the judge was persuaded to cancel court or adjourn court early prior to the jury beginning deliberations. And this this is a little confusing. It's mentioned in one of the one of the opinions and so I'm kind of summarizing it as I understand it, but I could be totally wrong. It, that could not be how it happened. But anyway, um then the judge approached Leo Frank's attorneys And outside Frank's presence and the presence of the Solicitor General, the judge said, I'm afraid of what will happen if uh, the jury returns an acquittal or can't decide. So I don't want you or your client in court when the jury delivers their verdict. And 
Luther Rother agreed, felt that that was a possibility. And so he agreed that neither they, so none of Frank's attorneys and Leo Frank were not in court when the jury returned their verdict. Um, again, today, I think that kind of error, where whenever you raise it, it's such a structural error and so fundamental to the rights guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution that Leo Frank in the 21st century would have gotten a new trial. It, it's not something that can be – that could have been – you know, procedurally denied because he didn't raise it at the right time, which we'll talk about later, and it's not something that can be waived. Your attorney can agree to it, but unless you agree to it as well, it's your right, and that, like testifying in your own defense, that is a right that solely belongs to the defendant. Today, if a judge felt that that was an issue, a potential issue, then the colloquy would be among the judge, the attorneys for the state, the attorneys for the defendant, and the defendant. And they would put the defendant on the record saying, I've been advised, I agree, and I will not be present. I'll waive my presence. It can, it's a present, your presence can be waived, but I don't think that's a, a, a an, a, I think that belonged to Frank, and Frank should have waived it. And it, he didn't waive it. He didn't know they were going to waive it. He was brought to court the next day and sentenced to death. Hmm. <laughs> and he That's knew not. then that he wasn't present when the verdict was. Uh, I'm sure they have, they informed him of the verdict, you know, later that day. But right. um, and then the other thing, when the jury found him guilty. Uh, the crowd outside erupted and made so much noise that it actually disrupted polling each of the jurors to uh, confirm that they each voted guilty. Damn. And um, also in 1913, um, the judge sentenced a defendant convicted of a capital murder, and as I believe, a death sentence was mandatory. Mm-hmm. There was no room for the judge to uh, to you know choose life sentence rather than than death. And so the the day following the verdict, Leo Frank was brought into court, and the judge sentenced him to death and set his execution date for October 10th, 1913. Damn. So then that was August – it was August 26th that he was sentenced, and his date was set for August – October 10th, 1913, less than two months. And why don't we pause now and have a little bit of a break? 
Okay. We can certainly do that, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be back with more after this. This Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Jim Conley got one year for accessory after the fact in Mary Fagan's murder. Okay. Okay. Just to, I didn't have that on the outline, but I thought, oh, I gotta say that. So, <clears throat> a stay of execution was granted when Leo Frank filed a motion for new trial. Um, he raised the issues regarding. Uh, admission of some of the evidence that was prejudicial. 
He raised issues regarding some new evidence that had come to light. Um, I think Jim Conley had confessed to a girlfriend at the jail that he had been the one to kill Mary Fagan. Um, and that, you know, he pinned it on Leo Frank so he wouldn't hang. And the judge, while expressing doubts about Frank's guilt, he denied the motion for new trial because he didn't find the the evidence presented by Frank at that point to be sufficient to remand the case to you know vacate the conviction and and remand the case for a new trial. Wow. Uh, and after he denied the motion for new trial, he reset Frank's execution date for April 17th, 1914, which would have been Frank's 30th birthday. Oh, wow. Kind of cold. Frank appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court, and that resulted in another stay of execution. He also filed an extraordinary motion to set aside his conviction, raising for the first time the fact that he was not present when the verdict was rendered. Um, that was denied because the issue should have been raised in the motion for new trial. Right. And so his case proceeded to the Supreme, Georgia Supreme Court for the direct appeal. Um, the majority of the justices found that the uh, evidence regarding improper behavior with the other factory girls and the testimony of some of those girls was uh, necessary to prove motive and intent and was not improperly admitted by the trial judge. There were two justices that dissented who found that the evidence was not uh, did not deal with conduct with a victim and was therefore more prejudicial than probative. Um, Then Frank filed another motion, another extraordinary motion, which was denied in the trial court and the Georgia Supreme Court affirmed. And then he appealed to the Northern District of Georgia which was the U.S. District Court. Okay. Um, He actually wrote the petition, and there were a couple of pages missing, but I read it, and for an engineer, this guy could have been a lawyer because he really did a great job laying out all of the issues. But relief was denied, and... um, The case went, he filed a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court, which also reviewed, uh, which did, you know, review the case, but found that the, while the failure, his lack of presence at the uh, verdict was an error that he had waived his presence. And that the time to have raised that issue was in his initial motion for new trial. Justice 
Oliver Wendell Holmes did not agree with his brothers and uh, actually filed a very, uh, very interesting dissent, which basically felt that, or basically held that, you know, the, the, it was a, an error so fundamental that not raising it in the new trial, he raised it in a motion to set aside conviction, which is done in Georgia. And there were other cases in Georgia that uh, had said you don't complain about that in a motion for a new trial. You you know raise it in a motion to set aside your conviction. And they ultimately denied him relief. So then Frank's execution was reset for June 22nd, 1915. Uh, Frank filed a request for clemency to the Georgia, uh, the Georgia Board, and Par- Board of Pardons and Paroles. Um, but he was seeking exoneration. And I think one of the other problems with the Supreme Court writ was he wasn't seeking that his conviction be vacated and the case remanded for a new trial. He was seeking exoneration. He was uh, invoking double jeopardy to say my conviction is flawed, fundamentally flawed, and they can't try me again. And so uh, the Georgia board denied his initial request. But then a second request was filed with uh, outgoing Governor John M. Slayton. Mm -hmm. Governor Slayton had the backing of the local Democratic uh, Party. He was going to go from the governor's mansion to Washington, D.C., as a senator for the state of Georgia. He had a bright political career ahead of him. However, he could not do nothing when it came to the case of Leo Frank. Mm -hmm. And so after reviewing the trial record and the uh, new evidence and new information submitted by Leo Frank, he elected on, I think it was June 21st, 1915, to commute Frank's sentence from death to life. Hmm. Um, he did have some reservations, as the judge had, with Conley's testimony and the inconsistencies and the lies to police and uh, all those things. And while he respected and and left in place the jury's verdict, he did not feel that there was enough confidence for him to uh, execute Leo Frank. That decision cost him his political career, and he and his wife even had to leave Georgia for a period of years. Damn. Um, the Atlanta, Marietta area were very unhappy with that decision, even though Frank was not exonerated. He was not released from prison. 
Right. He was just not going to be executed. Um, Frank was transferred shortly after that decision from Fulton County Jail in Atlanta to the Milledgeville Prison Farm. On, I think it was July 18th, an inmate slashed Frank's throat. Dang. And he was able to survive. And uh, the a group of men in Marietta, Georgia, got together and formed uh, what they called the Knights of Mary Fagan. It was about okay. 25 men, young, some, some middle-aged, some old, and they decided they were going to do what the state of Georgia refused to do. Oh, good God. So they got together, and they drove from Marietta to Milledgeville. They stormed the prison, although I don't believe the prison guards put up a whole lot of resistance because mm-hmm. um, they did cut off the phones, and they did do some things that kind of uh, isolated the prison, but a shot, no shot was fired by, by either side. And Frank was kidnapped from the prison in Milledgeville. They drove him, I think it was 25 or 30 miles, back to Marietta. Um, This was on August 16, 1915. On the morning of August 17, 1915, they hanged Leo Frank from a tree near the Fagan family home. In Marietta. Damn. Um, And I didn't post the pictures, but from what I could tell, they didn't even do it right. Oh, man. So he didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't done where it was drop and you're gone. It was a drawn out death. For Leo Frank. Um, Frank was buried, was taken back to Brooklyn, New York, and buried in Brooklyn. Two of the things that came out of this on opposite ends of the spectrums, um, B'nai B'rith, this is one of the, one of the incidents that led to the formation of the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that was one of the problems. There was underlying prejudice against Jews in, in Atlanta, even though Jewish contributions in the South go back to before the Revolutionary War. Right. And, um, I mean, Louisiana and, and Georgia and Tennessee and Mississippi, you know, they, Jews are part of the communities and have been for, you know, generations. But they were always seen as, um, different. Because of the religion. 
because of their religion, and I think people didn't understand it. Right. And, and some of the fundamentalist, uh, you know, religions in that part of the South probably look at it as, you know, these were Jesus' people and they let him die. Because I've yeah. heard fundamentalists say that. <laughs> um, but... Um, so then, and the other end of the spectrum is that in November of 1915, men gathered at Stone Mountain, some of whom were part of the Knights of Mary Fagan, and they formed the Georgia Ku Klux Klan. Oh, of course. Why am I not shocked? Now, another thing about this is that even though there are photographs and there were photographs, photographs which became postcards from Marietta of this event. Oh, my God. Are you no serious? one was ever prosecuted in oh Fulton County God. or any other county in Georgia for the kidnapping and murder of Leo Frank. Wow. Um, and I believe... One of the men was a former governor of Georgia. My goodness. I may be mistaken. He was either a former governor, a former senator, or a former attorney general. My goodness. So... um, Fast... Forward to 1982, Alonzo Mann was a 14-year-old office worker. He was like a runner for the pencil factory. He would, you know, do errands and take things to the Montag Stationery Company, and you know, go pick up supplies and whatever the the office workers needed him to go get. Um. He came forward in 1982, he was in his 80s, and he claimed that he had seen Jim Conley carrying Mary Fagan's body over his shoulder and that Jim Conley threatened him. He fled from the factory. He told his parents what had happened, and his parents didn't want him to get involved, and so he remained silent. And he did testify at trial. Mm-hmm. But he didn't tell the police about this, and he didn't, you know, bring this up to Frank's attorneys because he testified on behalf of the defense. Um, so this never made it into Frank's trial. It's right. exculpatory as to Frank because Frank wasn't there when he saw Conley carrying Mary Fagan's body. And Conley claimed that he and Frank moved the body together. Hmm. So um, that statement was presented in a request for a pardon seeking Frank's exoneration in Georgia in 1982. That request was denied. Why? Um, because there, well, there is aside from that statement, 
even going back to the admission by Connolly of killing Mary Sagan and framing Leo Frank, there isn't any there isn't anything more. Man, fuck that. More conclusive. What else do you want in the age where there's to, no such DNA and anything? Oh, Shit. Right. But that there was, you know, there was just that that was not enough. Um, and I can kind of sort of see that, but not really. Um, but uh, that was denied. And then a second request was made in 1986. And that request actually was more about the failure to protect Leo Frank's rights. Right. After his sentence was commuted. And that was granted. Okay, good. In 1986. Um, They couldn't really, you know, as I said, they couldn't declare him actually innocent because there just isn't enough. Right. And, And, you know, Alonzo Mann not coming forward for... 70 something years is a is kind of an, is kind of one of the reasons uh-huh. uh, and some would argue that it doesn't really exonerate Frank except that he didn't see Frank there and Conley can't claim they moved the body together Conley claimed he couldn't carry her on his own so he needed Frank's help and that they dumped her in the basement together So, um, so yeah, he was eventually pardoned, uh, but it was not as to his guilt or innocence. So he wasn't really exonerated. It was that he was his rights were not protected because once his sentence was commuted, he still had probably extraordinary avenues that he would have to pursue. But he still had avenues he could have pursued in order to challenge his conviction and sentence. Right. And also, I mean, there was, after Frank's lynching, you know, Jim Conley was arrested for all kinds of things. And he wrote some really disturbing letters to someone that I think were included in one of the new trial or other extraordinary right. remedies. Frank tried back in 1914-1915 that cumulatively at some point could have resulted in even getting a new trial. Now, the Fulton County Conviction Integrity Unit is looking at reexamining the case. What that will entail, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to, you know, maybe like hold a mock trial, uh, if they're going to examine it, applying current Supreme Court precedent that would have granted, would have given Frank relief on so many issues. Mm -hmm. Or whether 
you know, they're going to they're gonna look to see if there is any evidence, any physical evidence from that time. Right. Um, they're just, and it could be an empty promise to look at it again. Uh, um, Mary Sagan's family is very impacted. They were, were very upset about the pardon that was eventually granted. They are, uh, they've been upset by some of the other public, sentiment in Frank's favor that has uh, happened over the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they believe in their hearts that Leo Frank killed Mary Fagan. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the, one of the reasons I, I want to go into um, one of the reasons I think this is a miscarriage of justice is that in less, well, just a little bit over two months' time, I don't think that there was any snowball's chance in hell of picking a fair and impartial jury in Fulton County, in Cobb County, in DeKalb County, or even in Forsyth County, right. in that Atlanta Marietta area. Um, I just I just don't think there was. And with the um, climate of resentment of the northern factory owners, resentment of the working conditions, resentment of the pay, resentment of the fact that these young southern women were having – or young southern girls were having to work in these factories pennies to support their families was um, going to make a lot of, a lot of jurors look at Leo Frank and see him as the enemy. Right. I, um, I think there was also a, an element, especially with the girls in the factory. I think there was an element of not understanding Frank. He was not, he was not a ladies man. Uh, one of the resources I read, his wife actually arranged to be introduced to him. Mm-hmm. And they started dating and they got married. So he was not a ladies' man or a Casanova by any stretch of the imagination. He was also probably, I think, a little better with 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 equipment and numbers and products than he was with people. Damn. Right. And, you know, people people who knew him and understood him could, you know, thought he was great. But I think people who especially were the southern mindset and the northern mindset, especially in that era, were like night and day. Hmm. Right. So, you know, people didn't understand how his mind worked, I think. Um, And he, you know, he was described as arrogant and shy at the same time. So one of the problems that I have is that while the procedure was available for either the judge to change the venue 
or the defendant's attorney to request a change of venue, that was not done in Leo Frank's case. The first ineffective assistance of counsel case, however, was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1934 or 1932. It was Powell versus Alabama. So the concept of ineffective assistance of counsel was not available in post-conviction litigation. Um, The other thing is the Solicitor General's use of inflammatory, prejudicial facts not in evidence because they weren't put on in his case in chief in cross-examination of Frank's character witnesses is something that could not have happened today. And then there were some disturbances in the courtroom and outside the courtroom on different during different times in the trial that should have resulted in a mistrial and moving the case out of Atlanta because Um, There was an instance where the crowd outside, the window of the courtroom was open, and the crowd outside was cheering when the solicitor scored a point. Right. Um, There was an instance where the spectators in the gallery during the trial were laughing at one of Frank's witnesses. And then Mm. they applauded during an uh, an exchange between the solicitor... Hugh Dorsey and Luther Rosser or one of Frank's other defense attorneys. I think it was Mr. Hawes. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they moved for a mistrial and that was denied. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, you know, again, I, I think it, it demonstrates that he just could not get a fair trial in Fort, Fulton County. <clears throat> And then, um, as we discussed a little bit earlier, I think the the fact that he wasn't present when the verdict was rendered and that he did not waive and was not present, and the fact that the judge was so afraid that an acquittal or a mistrial would lead to violence against Frank and his attorneys is another indicator that the trial in Fulton County was not a fair one. Mm-hmm. And that the jury was either biased against Frank coming in or improperly influenced by what was going on outside the courtroom, what was going on in the gallery in the courtroom, and just the improper and prejudicial evidence that was relied on by the solicitor in his case in chief. Because Connolly's conflicting statements and lies and he mentioned things for the first time during his testimony that he never mentioned in any of his other statements. Um, It just leaves room for reasonable doubt. And that a jury did not have reasonable doubt is troubling. Um, Now, they couldn't determine in those days whether Mary Fagan was 
sexually assaulted or not. Because some of the indicators that would be relied on could have been caused by the lack of proper examination in those days. Um, but her purse was missing and her her pay envelope and whatever money she had with her when she got on that trolley in East Point was never found. Right. And so the more likely motive is that Jim Conley robbed her. Yeah, I agree. And she was a little girl, but she was a tough girl. And he probably struck her, knocked her down. She had a an injury on her head. He thought she was dead. He was probably trying to move her body. She made a noise. Maybe she started to regain consciousness, and so he strangled her. And then he was in the clear because for the first several days, he wasn't even a blip on anybody's radar, but then he gets caught washing a bloody shirt in the factory. And ends up being arrested, so he has to save his ass. He implicates Leo Frank. Um, today, if the case were even investigated, I mean, the pictures would have been, there would have been more pictures of the crime scene um, I've only seen like maybe one picture was taken of Mary Frank, Mary Fagan's body. Uh, it may not even be her body. I'm not sure. Um, Frank's clothes, he offered his laundry from the week as well as the suit that he wore on Saturday. That would have been examined. And if there was no evidence of blood on it, that would have been pretty powerful evidence at his trial that there was no blood linking him to Mary Fagan's death. Mm -hmm. Um, Mary Fagan's clothes could have been tested and determined if by some chance there was any blood from her killer. Um, There was a bloody fingerprint on that sliding door but that was never tested. And I don't think fingerprint it had fingerprint technology started I think in the eighteen eighties or eighteen nineties, but it wasn't available in every department, in every state, in every city. Mm-hmm. It was still some somewhat of a novel concept in nineteen thirteen. Um, you probably could have gotten somebody from New York City, but there probably wasn't anybody in Atlanta at the Atlanta Police Department who did fingerprint examination. So that, you know, that piece of evidence, that could have answered the question definitively, conclusively. If the blood on the door belonged to Mary Fagan, the, whoever the fingerprint belonged to killed her. And since I think that was Jim Conley's means of access in and out of the factory that, you know, that leads that he's the more likely killer than Leo Frank. And I just looking at his statement and he accounted for his day 
and there just wasn't time. Right. So he didn't. He didn't really have opportunity. He always admitted he was, you know, he was the last person to see her, aside from her killer. Um, But I just don't think that he he had anything to do with it because after she left, he can account for what he was doing for the next 20 or 30 minutes until he went home for lunch. So... So that is um, that is the case, and the the shirt Jim Conley was found washing would have also been examined. And if the blood on it belonged to Mary Fagan, he would have had a hard time and uh, implicating Leo Frank. Right. I, I, I don't believe Leo in today's society would have been convicted, but I mean it is what it is. Now. He was he he was the last person to see her alive, so he was a you know a suspect. But I think, like I said, his ability to account for what he was doing and produce the documents that he worked on is pretty strong evidence that after she left, he went back to work in his office. He wasn't following her to some other room and, you know, attacking her and injuring her. Um, It's kind of the the sources are kind of split as to whether or not she was sexually assaulted or or an attempted sexual assault Mm -hmm. was committed. Um, And again, a, a modern forensic pathology or a modern autopsy would have definitively answered that question one way or the other. And, you know, it could have been staged to look like a sexual assault to cover up the robbery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, another interesting thing in reading Leo Frank's statement, even though Conley's implicating him, He's not pointing his finger back at Connolly. He's not pointing his finger at Newt Lee. He's not pointing his finger at anybody else. He's just saying, I don't know who but it did it, but me. it was not me. And Maybe that's I- another thing that I find, you know, to me, he doesn't know. And so he's not going to say it was Jim Connolly or Newt Lee or Gant, or anybody else. He's just going to say, I don't know who it was, but it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And all these other cases that we've talked about, usually, with few exceptions, they're saying, it wasn't me, it was him. And then they're citing the same kind of inconclusive, circumstantial uncorroborated allegations that were supposedly the uh, foundation of their wrongful conviction in support of their pointing fingers at the other guy. Right. So, 
But hmm. yeah, that is uh, the uh, that is one that is. I agree with the majority of the resources that this was a miscarriage of justice. He didn't get a fair trial. He was more likely than not actually innocent. Um, I'm sorry that that would cause pain for Mary Fagan's family. She has a a great niece that was named after her. Um, but in examining all the information, that's the opinion that I've formed. Right. I agree. So, I definitely agree. Um, so that is that is the Mary Fagan, Leo Frank. They were both victims. Absolutely. I uh, and you know, and you even even if I believed he, even if I believed he'd gotten a fair trial, and that you know that I believed that there was sufficient evidence to support his conviction, I also believe that the the Marietta people in Marietta or men in Marietta had no right to take action when the governor of Georgia followed his conscience and did what he thought was the right thing in commuting the sentence. He wasn't reversing the the verdict. He wasn't vacating the conviction. He wasn't pardoning him and releasing him from prison. Leo Frank was going to spend the rest of his life in prison in Georgia unless another court, unless he proved actual innocence to another court at some date in the future. Um, But, you know, like I said, I think it was ineffective assistance of counsel for Luther Rosser not to move for a change of venue because if the change of venue had been had been denied with the atmosphere outside and inside the courtroom, an appellate court might have found that not only did he not get a fair trial, but that um, his convictions should be vacated and he should get a new trial in another jurisdiction and another venue. Good point. So, um, and I think that he should have also been granted his conviction should have been vacated and a new trial granted by either the Georgia Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court on the fact that he was not present when the verdict was read and he did not waive his presence at the time the judge saw it to essentially bar him from the courtroom. And he wasn't he wasn't being kept out of the courtroom because he was disrupting the proceedings. He was being barred from the courtroom because the judge was afraid for his life. And that's another reason I think that U.S. Supreme Court or the Georgia Supreme Court could have used to grant him a new trial. Right. If the judge is afraid of what's going to happen if he's acquitted or the jury can't reach a decision – then I'd say that the atmosphere is has already contaminated has contaminated the trial. 
Right. And it hasn't been a fair one from day one. No, it wasn't. It it was complete travesty from what it sounds like, honestly. So um, send this link to Sean so he can listen to it and hear me say miscarriage of justice. (laughs) His heart might stop. (laughs) (laughs) He might. Oh, my goodness. He would be so surprised. But see, that's that's what I talk about. Have all the information. Because I've been reading pro-Frank and anti-Frank web pages for weeks. Right. And, um, but again, I've also relied primarily on the opinions. Very good point. I was so tickled when Fast Case had these four opinions, three from the Georgia Supreme Court and one from the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that is that is about all to say. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, I think we pretty much summed it up pretty well. I mean, I think it was. It, it was a complete miscarriage of justice. Uh, it, there's no way around it, in my opinion. They completely screwed it. I, I mean... But it is what it is. You can't right. really. And, and it was, you know, 1913, the state of post-conviction law and precedent was not what it is today. Like I said, ineffective assistance to counsel was not something that they raised, was not something the Supreme Court had ever found grounds to grant relief on the first case of that was in 1930s mm-hmm. now who's to say if they hadn't lynched him in 1915 after Powell versus Alabama was signed or was, was decided Leo Frank might have tried to get an effective assistance to counsel mm-hmm. against Luther Russell I think the the only ineffectiveness I saw was not requesting a change of venue. Yeah. Immediately when, when Frank was indicted. And Rosser was representing him. I mean I would also I would also argue that not telling Frank, hey Frank, what do you want to do about this? They're saying that they don't want you to come to your own uh verdict. Correct. Not not going to Frank at the jail and saying, look, the judge doesn't think we, any of us should be there. And see, the thing, the other thing that I have a problem with is that um, if Leo Frank wasn't there, at least one of his attorneys should have been there. Absolutely agree. Because they weren't there to witness the noise from outside during the polling of the jury and so they could not convey or could not assess whether that was also a violation of Leo Frank's rights because the impression I got from some of the opinions I read is that they didn't even finish polling the jury because they couldn't hear what the jurors were saying I agree and again, you know, at least one of his attorneys should have been there 
to protect his rights because nobody was there protecting Leo Frank's rights at that point. True. So, um, and a future decision of the U.S. Supreme Court on that issue might have have also benefited Leo Frank down the line, even if his case had been, because that's such a fundamental right that it doesn't matter when you raise it. Yeah. Sometimes the the press the new precedent set by the U.S. Supreme Court is a, is enough to go back and say you know this is a fundamental right and it was denied. Hmm. So, well, you ready to put a bow on it? Let's put a bow on her. It sounds like you are. <laughs> I I apologize. I am. Um, it's a little warm in here. Ah, I got and you. So You're I I get a little I get a little sleepy when it gets too warm and comfy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at Clear and Convincing Podcast. .wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, March 10th, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 2, State of Mississippi versus Curtis Giovanni Flowers. Flowers has been tried six times for the July 16, 1996 shooting deaths of four people inside the Tardy Furniture Store in Winona, Mississippi. Flowers' six conviction, six conviction was recently vacated by the United States Supreme Court, and he was released on bail pending a decision on whether to try him a seventh time. We'll talk about the murders of Bertha Tardy, Carmen Rigby, Robert Golden, and Derek Stewart, the evidence that implicated Flowers, and his multiple trials and reversals. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.